0: Hey, welcome back listening audience. We are glad to have you along. As always, it's really humbling to uh, have people listen to what I have to say. And if you like what we're saying, please share it because I don't do this for a paycheck. I do it just to, you know, make earth better as my good friend Mike Cedini would say. And uh, we hope that we're doing that. And speaking of making earth better, I was Made aware of something recently about when I go into these podcasts, I purposely don't look up the person beyond like basic details, you know, title, uh, profession, that kind of thing. I don't read into bios um, because I want to stay humble and curious throughout the interview, um, and I realize that may come off um, somewhat um, simplistic, I guess, um, but i i don't I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm being Contrivingly dumb <laughs> in these interviews. It's like, geez, Jake, did you do any research on your guests before you had them on? It's like, no, no, I didn't, because I want to. I want to ask questions as if I don't know the answer. Because if I research stuff ahead of the time, uh, what happens is it slips into my unconscious and it tells my brain that I already know it, so I don't need to ask it, and then that doesn't help the audience. Um, so. That's the framework with which I do a lot of these interviews. I try to be as humble and open as possible, because I I myself love learning, and I learned a ton from this week's guest, uh, Amy Hughes Lansing. Um, She's a child health psychologist. She works with children and adolescents. We call it pediatric, uh, rather than child and adolescent, um, if you want to be fancy. But uh, she helps kids and their parents uh, learn healthy behaviors to understand improve their mental functioning because the two go hand in hand. Um, and I, I learned a ton just by, by listening and asking and, um, you know, pinging things off with my own, um, you know, opinions and so forth so that I can hopefully have my mind changed. And I think that's really important. And if I could issue a, an invitation to the, to the listening audience now, it would be to engage your conversations with people with great humility and deference, um, meaning, you know, take a one down approach, like you don't know everything on the other side of the, the story. And, um, Listen very carefully to understand and uh, engage your conversations to understand, not to be understood. Uh, The more that I found that I try to understand, um, the less I try to be understood and the more my message actually gets conveyed, which is uh, paradoxical but effective. So take that for what it's worth. Check out Zephyr Wellness if you want to. Uh, hard left turn off of that topic to uh, sponsorships. <laughs> uh, we try to put out information, of course, to help I- enrich and expand everybody's noggin in the same way that Noggin Notes does. And that's why we uh, we sponsor the show with my my voice hosting it, uh, ZephyrWellness.org. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share all that with friends, too, because, again, we don't make money off this stuff. We just want to help people heal. Also, if you want to uh, expand your knowledge base a little bit more, go to Audible. Get a Get a free Audible trial. You can go to audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes, download a free Audible trial and a free audiobook with it. You get it for 30 days, uh, the trial anyway, risk-free. You get your You get to cancel at any time, and you get to keep your book. Uh, if it's a book you downloaded, it. if it's something else, you get to keep that too. But whatever audio content you get from their totally unmatched selection, audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes get yours today and you know what share that with a friend too because hey sharing is caring in the meantime listen to me chat with amy hughes lansing university professor and uh, pediatric health psychologist i think you'll enjoy it Today, I am happy to have uh, someone I would consider a colleague. Uh, she's a health psychologist, so she's a psychologist. I'm a marriage and family therapist by license and by trade. We do slightly different things, but overall, we're, we're in the behavioral health field, and, uh, and we try to you know, make Earth better through making people uh, be more aware of what they choose to do with their behaviors and so forth. So uh, Amy Hughes, Dr. Amy Hughes Lansing, hello, Amy.
1: Hey, how are you?
0: I'm Excellent. Thanks. Um, You were a professor. I don't know if anybody knows the difference between assistant and associate professor at the uh, collegiate level. Maybe you can explain that, but you're, you're an assistant, you are an assistant professor Mm -hmm. at University of Nevada, and you're uh, heading to Vermont because you got a different job. And so you're traveling right now, which is kind of interesting. We're a couple of time zones away, but we met through something called Project Echo. And it's a, it's a series of clinics Uh, That are held virtually so all the the parties log into their computers and then we staff cases of of all sorts and they and they're not just mental health they they run from uh, gerontology to uh, diabetes to uh, anything anything related to health care and people can get the expertise of multiple voices from across really truly the country in some cases. Uh, I was on a school-based mental health echo once, and we had people from like Idaho and Colorado and California on it, which was really cool. So anyway, she was one of the presenters. She presented her health psychology material, and I was uh, attracted because I thought that our audience would really appreciate hearing what Amy has to say. So introduce the rest of yourself, what you do, what your interests are, um, what hood you rep, so on and so forth.
1: Okay, Um, so... Uh, Amy. I am uh, by, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. Um, I'm a college professor. So, an assistant professor means I'm at the bottom of the ranks. Okay. <laughs> I'm not tenured. <laughs> I'm, I'm, my job is liable. I don't know. Um, so, I have been for the last three years at the University of Nevada, Reno in the Department of Psychology. And I am headed uh, this summer. My affiliation will change in July. Uh, to the Department of Psychological Science at the University of Vermont, I'll be doing really the same thing I do here at the University of Nevada, um, but in a different location. Um, So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. A large part of my job is uh, really focused on knowledge translation. I do research, um, I train clinicians, uh, and then I teach. And so my area of expertise Uh, clinically is in uh, pediatric psychology. And what that is, is basically uh, the intersection of child and adolescent clinical psychology. So focusing on disorders, uh, psychiatric disorders, psychopathology in kids, teens, and emerging adults, and at the intersection of behavioral medicine or health psychology. So um, thinking about how can we leverage psychology uh, to benefit physical health, Um, and think typically focusing in on behavior change and social relationships and their role in our physical health across the lifespan. And so I work at the intersection of those two in a field that is known as pediatric psychology, um, where I really do both things, mostly focused on working with teens, but I really do work all the way into emerging adulthood kind of and down into infancy. And so our goal, the goal of my research is uh, to better understand adolescent health behaviors and to use clinical psychology as a tool for supporting adolescents in making healthy behavior decisions. And I love focusing on adolescents. I think the developmental period is interesting, but also it's such a critical phase of life to establish healthy habits. Um, So it's a really important time to think about health behavior change. Um, And so um, a lot of my research focuses on chronic disease management, Things like obesity, uh, type one diabetes management, Um, and that research tries to understand both why things get tough, why things go better, and test interventions. So try and figure out better ways that we can change these things for kids and their families.
0: Man, there's so much that I want to ask, and I want to try to keep the audience in mind and not just um, go down my own personal uh, curiosity rabbit hole. But um, I think for me in my conversations with, you know, the broader populace, when I explain what I do, um, people struggle to understand the mind from the brain, right? That's, that's one of the things that we end up uh, having to explain. Uh, The mind is a, is a construct. It's something that's assume to exist, but we, we can't necessarily prove that it's there. So we, we just assume that it exists. And so we try to separate out like this idea of consciousness and unconsciousness and, and then like brain neurological functioning. But then you bring in like this, this physical health component too, which is um, behaviors. And, and I've talked to enough psychologists over time that I know you guys training goes something to the effect of everything is a behavior. Right, so like your thinking is a behavior. You're you're excreting from your uh your glands is a behavior, right? Like uh, what food you eat is behavior. So everything's like a behavior, right? Um, And I'm a little tongue in cheek when I say that, but I think if you could help our audience understand the nexus, you you mentioned intersection a couple of times in there, because I think um, it helps people to to hold these concepts separate and apart in order for us to tackle them together. Um, so if you wouldn't mind explaining like why it's necessary to view human behaviors, especially in children as, um, you know, health, you know, physiology versus mind psychology versus like bodily function, you know, um, physiology, which is like some of your, uh, regular, um, processes and so forth. Because I think a lot of people just, in my experience are just like, well, isn't it all the same? I'm like, well, no.
1: You know, it's, um, I I think there's such a drive in the way our health system is set up to also keep these things separate, right? That you go to see one doctor for physical ailments and you go and see a different doctor um, when you have an emotional ailment. And and that's a problem. And right? we need yeah. to solve that in our system, I think, in a lot of ways and get more integrated care. Um, but the reason that I think we have to start like in thinking about these separate things, like why does behavior matter for physical health, right? So when we think about cancer, there's data that suggests that um, a significant proportion, sometimes described as upwards of 90-95% of cancer diagnoses, might be prevented through behavioral intervention. Wow. Thinking about things like both Um, obesity increases risk for cancers think about smoking uh, uh, you know dietary changes there's there's a whole array of ways in which we can prevent cancer through behavior change and the National uh, Cancer Institute NCI actually funds a lot of health behavior change research um, even though uh, as they study cancer Uh, cardiovascular disease right the prevention of cardiovascular disease recovery from acute coronary disease so a a heart attack um, is very behavioral. That whole process requires health behavior change, uh, dietary change, physical activity change. Um, When we think about diabetes, metabolic disease, um, the same goes there. Uh, And so I think that when we are, if we put on our physical health hat of thinking about why should a physician or why should someone who wants to have better physical health care about um behavior well that's why right like we don't need to just be taking pills to solve a lot of these health, physical health ailments um behavior matters on the other side of the puzzle um, we also know that emotional health and our emotional well-being drives our like kind of sets us on a path for physical health across the lifespan if you have a ton of chronic stress it wears there's this thing called allostatic load and um every time you experience stress um, the HPA axis, the center in your brain, is driving cortisol through your body, driving epinephrine, turning on your cardiovascular system, your immune system, your neuroendocrine system, and it wears out, right? Persistent activation of that system across time um, can increase hardening of arteries. Um, there's some data to show shortened telomere length. So at the end of each strand of uh, your DNA, there's things called telomers, and they shorten its like cell aging effectively. Um, and they're shorter, the more chronic stress that you have across the lifespan. And uh, so if we want to increase longevity, um, you know, it's not only about preventing, dis- preventing or treating diseases, you know, we can increase longevity by addressing emotional health and well-being. And um, so we've got to do both sides of the coin, but rarely do people, and you can probably speak to this, Jake, you know, but at least in psychology, even in psychology, as you say, it's not common to get training to do both things. Yeah. Um, that's only, you know, you aren't typically most mental health professionals don't know a lot about, um, treating physical health.
0: You're right. Yeah. I, I, and I want to, I want to address this real quick cause it's right yeah. now. And then I want to go backward a little bit and have you some explain some of those terms. um, To that point, I think I think there's a couple things at work, if not more than two. Uh, One is just lack of experience, right? If you're not, if you didn't play sports your whole life, or you didn't have a diet coach, or you know something like that, then you're not going to really know how your body works super well. You're going to know whatever was pushed through social media or whatever um, you know read on the back of the cereal box when you're growing up. But but beyond that, you don't you don't know too much, right? Um, And then the the other, I think. I don't want to call it sinister, but it's because that in implies in an intent, but it's, it's a little, it's a little insidious with the way that our licensing works, right? We're told repeatedly beat across the head, do not practice out of your scope. And mm-hmm. so we, as uh, I can at least speak to the, the mental health professionals who are, you know, of the master's degree where we go, we, we get told in school, do not, you can ask what medications they take, You can ask about their health habits, but you don't dare suggest changing any of that stuff because you are not a doctor. And so we get petrified coming out of school, even though we may have played sports our whole lives or have like an undergraduate in nutrition or something. And we're like, Oh, now I can't use all this knowledge because it's going, I'm going to be accused of practicing out of school and then I'm going to lose my license. And there goes my career. It's like, no, 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 that's not at all true. Like, of course you can speak to those things. And I think we want to embolden and empower our professionals to say, look, not only do you have the capability, you have the responsibility to address this and not ignore it. If somebody comes in there, you know, obese and smoking like a chimney and, you know, complaining about, uh, how they, they're they out of gas, and and they have all this, like, you know, psychological issues going on along we we can't we can step in and go, Hey, you know, Surgeon General has said, it's not real wise to keep smoking. We have some information that says, maybe you should shed a few pounds, you know, and then we've got this overarching culture that says, Oh, don't tell people to lose weight, because now you're fat shaming or whatever, right. So it's like, we've just conflated science with with politics. And so that's, I think that's why um, I don't know what the answer is, other than just telling people to like be bold but
1: (laughs) well I think I you know in my experience sometimes rather than being bold I found that it's it's about how kind of how you approach the problem and some of the work I've been doing has been focused on teaching different communication styles mostly to physicians on that side um, he's often physicians get burned out with trying to help their patients engage in healthy behavior change. They try and refer them to therapists um, and say, okay, you're their job now, but patients feel dismissed, right? Like I'm coming to you asking for help and you're just pushing me to the head right. person, you know, are um, you telling me to go see a shrink? And that's it. That doesn't increase engagement. Um, I have had so many families show up in my practice across time saying, I've been told all these things by physicians. They've dismissed my complaints. They've said, I must be on drugs. You know, I have these persistent headaches. They aren't going away and they're just sending me to you like I'm depressed and anxious. And, um, and
0: it's, And you're like, you have a bad diet.
1: (laughs) Well, it's also just really for so many physicians and families and people, it's such a paradigm change to think, psychologists and mental health professionals um, can have tools to support your physical quality of life and well-being and kind of how your health-related quality of life. Um, They don't need you to be depressed, anxious, have some psychiatric diagnosis for those things to be helpful. And so often people are told, oh, you're in pain. Oh, you're fatigued. We've checked all the things. It's all normal. Go Go see the therapist. Like, you need therapy. Medicine can't do anything for you anymore. Right. And that messaging is so counter to helping people learn that a problem symptom we're having is always going to be really multifaceted, multidimensional in terms of what's bringing it about. You know, if you're fatigued, if you're struggling with sleep, if you're having headaches every day, if you're struggling to quit smoking, if you're feeling, you know, if your weight is affecting your quality of life. Um there, you know, it's not just a medical uh, cause. Right. Uh, and, you know, we have to expand out to think, okay, if I want to manage my pain, if I want to manage these symptoms, I've got to think about what are the physiological things happening? What are the social things? What are the stressors? Right. What are my health habits uh, that are fitting in on this? Uh, you know, what are my functional kind of activities of daily living looking like? And I want a whole team of people helping me with this, right? Like I, I, if we can tackle each of these things, we are going to help people feel so much healthier in the long run. Um, and build their trust in saying, I don't just think that you're depressed or anxious and that's why you're having these symptoms. Um, that we aren't diminu- that we aren't kind of stigmatizing and diminishing people and kind of putting them in those boxes.
0: I have seen this emergence of, um, people's inability over the last 10, 12 years, maybe, since I think I I can roughly correlate it to uh, the the rise of social media and like, instant access of like, information and that kind of thing. It's like, where we've become, I I don't want to say binary, because that's not because that's like two things. But it's, we've, we've definitely compartmentalized uh, ideas such that they can no longer coexist at the same time, right? So it is binary in, in a sort. So what I'm hearing there is, as you're saying that, is and you can validate this or reject it if you want. But it's like our patients now are coming in, going, "I have this thing; it must beget these other things," mm-hmm. and and they, like the clinicians, are struggling to present a systemic picture of it. Say, so like, well, it's all it's all interrelated. This is all it's all circular causal, not. A to B to C, it's A might trigger C, which comes back to B, which then begets Q. And I, I, I don't know, are people struggling to wrap their heads around that concept?
1: Oh, you know, I think sometimes, I think sometimes the most, the simplest definition is one that's easier to understand. But sure. I, in my experience, people, people develop really strong beliefs or what I would call like an explanatory model. Like how do you explain your illness? How do you explain your current state of being? And I think that those mod, those explanatory models for why you're feeling the way you feel are really like, you know, they're brought together across development and they're culturally kind of guided by where you grow up and where you're coming from and how your society views those symptoms and what you've been taught to believe is the cause of those symptoms. And when people have a really really strongly ingrained model for why they're having these symptoms um they tend to get stuck in it and then they're only wanting treatment that fits with that model and then coming back to your point jake like if if you struggle if people struggle to move to that multi-systemic model and saying that i need to access support in all these areas um if they struggle to go there um you know, like um cha- getting the, the right the right treatment. Yeah, you're challenging their worldview. And I think at least here in the US, our worldview is very biomedical centric. Yeah. Right? That these are the biomedical model for health. Like health is a biomedical thing. And it's separate. I mean, we didn't have, you know, mental health parity for treatment of until what? 2010. Yeah, yeah, like 2013, that, right? something like yeah, that. I yeah, I think it was, you know, the 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 law was initially enacted maybe in 2010, but
0: yeah.
1: you know that's what we grew up in, right? Is that right. they you kind of stigmatize and set aside emotional health, and what I want treatment for is my physical health that has this biomedical root cause. And um, when you look at different cultures around the world, you see really different pictures. That's not the case everywhere. Um, there are places, you know, places that have that don't adhere as strongly to the biomedical model. Where, they aren't, where it's not as tricky to see this multifaceted uh, picture come together.
0: That's um, a really excellent way of laying it out, I think. Um, I appreciate you saying that. Carl Jung would call those introjects, the, the unquestioned beliefs or assumptions that form yeah. your, your worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we're trying to, we're not having our individual clients or patients question them. We're actually asking the entire society to question that. Cause like probably for about three or four generations now we've had Western medicine built in as this, like, you know, it'll fix things. <laughs> and then when it can't, we don't know what to do with that because we've like lost the ability to embrace something like death as a normal part of life. So it's like, well, death is unacceptable. Western medicine will fix it. And then COVID-19 shows up and we're like, we neither, neither one of those are compatible with what we're seeing. <laughs> and so everybody has like this anxious chaos it erupt. Um, probably because we have, um, conditioned ourselves to see the world a certain way. And, and when the, when the world won't produce the result we want, we, we get really frustrated and struggle to make peace with it. So I, I appreciate you laying that out. Um, I want to go back a little bit though, when you, when you were talking about how stress, it, it, this is, this is me paraphrasing you, stress yeah. will deteriorate your physical health. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've known that for some time. That's one of those yeah. common sense things that, uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I know that. But you just, you explained it in like 15 seconds with a whole bunch of, uh, medical terms, uh-huh. uh, that I would really like you to go back over a little bit slower so that people can yeah. truly envision what's going on in their bodies when they don't unplug, when they constantly are scrolling social media now I'm not, I'm not even knocking social media as like toxic or anything which it can be but it's just lots of information right it's too much for the brain to intake or if they work too much or the kids are just being a hassle or like stress right it's just normal life stress if you don't take a break what's your body doing
1: yeah so when when your brain senses a threat it activates something that we term is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Um, and the when activation happens on this axis, on this axis, um, neuroendocrine signals are sent uh, from the brain out to the adrenal glands um, and out broadly uh, to receptors throughout the body. Uh, to prepare your body to engage in behaviors that will help you survive a threatening situation.
0: This is what people and, refer to as the fight or flight reflex or an yeah, adrenaline so, rush?
1: Yeah. So if for many people, you experience that adrenaline rush. Um, adrenaline, also sometimes called um, epinephrine, is one of those endocrine, neuroendocrine system hormones that are released in response to cortisol, in response. And the the job of all of these changes in your body is to prepare that fight or flight, right? We're going to reduce digestion so that we can better profuse muscles so that you can flee more effectively. Our heart rate's going to go up and our blood pressure is going to increase us to prepare us for that fight or flight. Our immune system turns on and activates to prepare um, for wounds, impossible, um, needing coagulation. Um, wow. The whole system is built for an acute stressor, right? There is something life-threatening going on. And so my system's turning on to prepare me for this acute life-threatening stressor. Um, we humans now, you know, we perceive threat um, through uh, often social threat is one of the biggest pieces of threat that we're exposed to on a daily basis um, threat to our social standing, to our so- social interconnectedness with people. Um, that, you know, fears about can we feed our families? Are we going to stay healthy? Do I have financial stability? You know, housing stability, all of those things can trigger this stress response. Um, the challenge is that the system. Um, It wasn't, it wasn't built for these long-term chronic stressors, right? Right. It was built to turn on to help us for a short stressor. And so across time in humans, the system burns itself out from repeatedly turning on. Um, There are, you know, there there are things that we can do to kind of oppose that, right? We Breathing is one way that we can turn down that system. Mm. Um, that's the cool part about breathing is it's an involuntary thing we do, but we actually can exert voluntary control over it to help, de, you know, kind of quiet that stress system down. Um, for women, there is a, a theory called the tendon befriend theory of stress that suggests that, uh, you know, women are Less likely to fight or flight, and in periods of stress, they will tend to their young and their offspring, and they will befriend in social networks mm-hmm. and There are some good biological and evolutionary arguments for why women might be more predisposed to engage in those behaviors, but doing those things can also turn down the stress response in women um, Is that why
0: they live longer?
1: There is uh, some data to support that increased testru- increased testosterone and fight or flight responding that really like aggressive stress response decreases longevity in men. I'll be
0: yeah. Huh? Mm-hmm. We've got, uh-huh. we've had, you know, this narrative that suggests that, you know, if you're, if you're calm and peaceful, you live longer, like for forever and ever and ever across many, many cultures. And you just explained it physiologically, which is very, very cool. Um, and I'm thinking of, of the, the, the kids and the adults who, you know, were kids at one point in time who just aged, who have experienced childhood's worth or lifetime's worth of stress and chaos come from, you know, generational poverty and, um, and domestic violence. And, and that kind of, stuff. not, not to mention just, you know, out, out and out playground bullying. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, cause you're uh, you know, you're, you're the kid, you're the kid person here. Um, how do you take what you just explained in adult fashion and uh, help children, but also their parents to make the behavioral changes necessary, literally to save their lives in some cases?
1: Huh. okay. So I think there's, there's,
0: I know that's a big two- ask.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I, and I think that my, my initial draw in response to that is, is a systemic one is, um, you know, until we solve poverty, until we solve Mm -hmm. the, some of these systemic problems in our society, um, putting, I I really try and avoid applying a ton of pressure onto the families I work with to be the solver of some of these things that we're going to protect kids as best we can. But I, I, you know, I think we've got to do the work as a society, if we want to, Resolve these inequities, right? If we want to get rid, you know, we want these things to not be present because they're there. The loss of longevity and years of life due to, um, you know, acu- due to accumulating chronic stressors of childhood is very real. And when I talk to families, I think that it's much more of a focus on what they can achieve within reason. Um, you know, as I sit there and say, you've got to. we need to do work on all of these things. Gosh, it's really hard to do work and see all these providers go to a therapist regularly, you know, go to your doctor regularly, show up for the school appointments, show up for all these things when you don't have transportation, when you don't have ways to get places, when you're experiencing domestic violence. Um, and so really my focus for most families is on sustainable behavior change. You know, what are some simple, small things we can accomplish? Um, if you're living in a neighborhood with a lot of violence, I can't ask you to just go out Move. after school and play, right? Um, that's not that's not something I can do, but I can connect with uh, Boys and Girls Clubs and YMCAs and try and advocate for opportunities for kids who may not be able to afford those programming. Um, and so, and then connect families in with that, something achievable they can do. Um, for kids, for kids, you know, sometimes we'll talk with kids about kind of the, the alarm system that goes off, um, that their brain can sometimes set off a false alarm, um, or it sets off an alarm for something that might be concerning, and then it doesn't go away, right? It just kind of stays on blaring. And, you know, what are the things, how do they know when their alarm's stuck on? Well, they feel it in the pit of their stomach, um, that it just feels different. They're tense up and, you know, they can feel their muscles tense. Yeah. Um, their, you know, their heart beats fast. They're, they're flush. They, they notice their hands are sticky. And a lot of these things probably sound a little bit like anxiety too, but adrenaline's adrenaline. Um, it does its job regardless of the threat. But I think You know, we talk about kids about identifying how their what their body does, and then teach them the skills that they could use to turn those systems off. And so, um, breathing, relaxation skills, guided imagery are all things that we can teach younger kids, or teens, or even adults um, to learn how to notice when that alarm is stuck on and what they can do to help turn it down and turn it off.
0: So I, I really, I like what you said there. And I really appreciate you saying that because part of what we really want to do in this podcast is um, educate people so they can take some of these these pieces of information and integrate them into their own lives and heal, right? So um, for somebody maybe listening and like has kids um, or works with kids and they hear that and they're like, yeah, okay, I can help my, my kids identify when they're in this moment. What are some examples of things that would cause that moment? Because I I heard you say earlier, like the alarm bell may be a false alarm or it may be uh, sustained, right? Like what I'm trying to figure out what a false alarm might be because we can all identify what the real ones are.
1: (laughs) So false alarms usually happen in anxiety disorders in kids. Um, And a lot of kids who've been through trauma experience symptoms of anxiety. Okay. Um, And sometimes, even a false alarm for me is the alarm's louder than it should be. (laughs) The urgency of the alarm is proportionate to
0: the environment. You mean? Yeah, like it's
1: not. You know, um, and and so, with a history of trauma, you know, things that that would be a false alarm, right? Is that you think you're being excluded by your peer group, right there? That your your friends were doing something on the playground and you didn't feel included um, that someone took something that you thought was yours, um, that, you know, these are all age dependent on how how
0: this
1: might go, um, you know, that, that a teacher, um, dismissed you or spoke to you in a demeaning way or that you felt was demeaning in class, made you feel stupid, um, that you look stupid in front of your peers, your teacher thinks you're stupid, right? Those kinds of events would be things that, may or may not to an outsider be perceived as that, Um, that sometimes our lens, like kind of the glasses we're looking through at the world, um, kind of fools us into thinking some things are bigger and louder and happening when they aren't. And at the same time, sometimes these things really do happen. And especially for our kids coming from uh, you know, underrepresented backgrounds—they're much more likely to experience those kind of responses from their teachers and friends. Um, kids who struggle with behavior regulation often struggle to maintain good friendships, and um, and so I think oftentimes these things build on each other. Um, that that what may have been a feared thing becomes a reality, um, or just is the reality. Um, no matter what uh, we want. You know we want kids to have skills uh, to address some of these some of these persistent activations of stress, you know that whether we're teaching mindfulness in schools, adding yoga in, um, ways that we can broadly um, help kids recognize this and take steps to remediate it.
0: Yeah, I heard a lot in there with regard to confirmation bias, learned, I don't know if it's learned helplessness, more as learned victimhood maybe, um, and then self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, you know, if you're going to be a jerk, people are going to just avoid you. But then if you're a jerk uh, because they're avoiding you, then they avoid you even more. And then it becomes confirmation bias enforcing because you're like, see, see, there it is. They're leaving me alone. And I wanted to play, but it was because I threw sand at them, right? <laughs> um, so I, yeah, it's it's really interesting how i'm thinking of of my former fledgling therapist self when i was working with a lot of um kids in in trauma out in rural areas in nevada and uh, working in homes and and it was amazing how i didn't see it until like just now so this is why we're always learning right i'm 10 years into the profession 11 years in the profession and we're we're always going to be learning i didn't fully appreciate that their trauma history created the lens through which they saw the world treating them. Um, So almost uniformly, every one of those kids had problems with teachers in school. And I'm like, I don't know, your teachers are pretty nice. (laughs) Um, And so objectively, it was as you described, it was was a false alarm. The kids were not excluding them. The teachers were not ridiculing them. Um, But in their minds, because that's what they were raised to believe the world was doing to them, they just generalized it to every part of the world including the super helpful people, including me, and some of my uh, colleagues and associates, and it's like, oh, you don't like me either. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? And it's like, it's because it need they had to have that belief to fit their worldview to make their world make sense. Because if, if anything came aside from that, like if they, if they actually had to acknowledge that somebody was really nice, or they were really compassionate, um, or they forgave, then that means that they'd have to like question other things too, and that's, that was, it's really hard to reconcile that. <laughs>
1: to something to layer onto that is that the way that our stress systems develop um is that that our early environment tell helps program our stress response.
0: Oh sure, and sure. Yeah. Grow
1: mm-hmm. up in really um unstable um you know Com- like high conflict unstable low resourced environments where there's maybe high violence there's lack of food um, all the things that are really common in our impoverished neighborhoods um, when they grow up in those environments their stress systems get programmed to be more reactive mm-hmm. and that's advantageous right that's actually adaptive that the system is calibrating to try and help the help kiddos survive
0: right right it keeps you, you safe
1: Right? They need to be more aware of risk. They need to be more attending to threat. They need to have a system that turns on to help, in effect, keep them safe. Uh, the challenge is, is, that that system, you know, that contributes to also some of, you know, adding that, layering that on to the way that cognitions develop and worldviews develop, right? And their sense of safety in the world. Um, it can be tricky to overcome because they're, you know, they're, their system is turning on in a way that their peer systems aren't, Mm -hmm. uh, which makes it really hard to, um, you know, it's not just letting go of the cognition, but also their, their physiological systems telling them otherwise.
0: Right. Uh, Right. Okay. So we can't, we can't necessarily bring environmental change. You know, we can't, can't, we can't wave our magic wand and just get rid of crime or uh, violence or um, put, the, put the kids and families in a safe home with lots of resources. So how do we work within that context then to help create some behavioral change that's a little healthier you know, socially or physically or otherwise? Or do you not necessarily want to mess with that too much because it's adaptive, as weird as it sounds?
1: no so there are that's a question that is often asked is you know are there sometimes may we be asking kids if we are we asking kids to engage in behaviors that are not adaptive in their current context right
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um we have a large body of literature that focuses on resilience right how when we look at kids who've been put through the ringer the environmental ringer some of them show what we in our society define as resilience, right? They're they're doing well. They're successful in school. They have, uh, you know, they're they're healthy in terms of their physical health. They're healthy in terms of their emotional health. They're achieving despite, and there are really, a really a recent study. It was a twin study that Edith Chen did, who's a fabulous she's a fabulous health, fabulous health psychologist. Um, a recent study that she published showed that even in those kiddos who exhibit resilience right who can achieve despite um it's only it's it's skin deep that their physiological systems are still showing high level higher levels of inflammation of low-grade inflammation across time and so you know the the question that we have to ask ourselves right now is you know how do we, how do we measure resilience? Because a lot of the interventions that we recommend are all indexed on things like academic achievement, right? Like good health, so good physical health, um, you know, good social emotional health. And I think we haven't done a good enough job asking which of our interventions actually um, address this, this persistent stress system activation. Um, that it's not just about promoting resiliency, it's about doing this other piece. And so, you know, I've seen some good data to support that mindfulness, um, may be a good tool, uh, for, um, helping address some of those disparities. And I think in particular, because mindfulness was developed, um, with attention to the physiological systems and with both this Eastern and Western philosophy kind of integration, um, And so, you know, you asked me the question of what do we do? And then I've now just answered to say we're screwed, um, which is (laughs) not fully what I mean. But I, you know, I think provide kids with stability to the best that we can stability in teachers, stability in childcare, um, access to food, um, you know, teach, provide parent training so that parents can create stability in homes, Um, having house rules, learning how to discipline effectively. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I think those things are where we have the best data to show that we are, we can make some progress on this. Um, and I think taking the onus off of the kids in some ways, yeah, uh, to, um, asking the people around them to help shape their, in their environment, to make it as stable as they possibly can. And that probably will get us the most
0: you don't want to bounce something off you here because I, I go back and forth on this where it's like my inner nihilist uh, emerges and I go, what does it all matter? And, <laughs> but here's, here's the general backdrop for why I think that. So 150 years ago, our profession didn't exist. Um, 100 years ago, it was barely in existence. And it was something, you know, some sorcery of the occult. And now it's all science-based. And so I go, I don't know, 40,000 years of humanity managed to make it without, you know, psychotherapy. Um, and then I look at present day and we go, no, 40,000 years of humanity has never encountered the rate of increasing psychological burden as we have today with, with the internet and instant gratification mentality and just information cycles, 24 hours a day pumped into our, our heads that we just literally did not evolve to, uh, absorb. Uh, and that's a new, uh, that's a new thing for the last i don't know twenty twenty five years like it's this isn't this is in my lifetime right <laughs> that we've gone from like library card catalog to Google search at the at the fingertips right so um, we just simply didn't didn't evolve as beings to endure this. I guess my question is how do we balance um the idea that hey we'll be just fine kids are, kids are going to be fine, adults are going to be fine against. Uh, maybe they won't, and they do need some, you know, pro- professional insights and encouragement to slow down and be more mindful of the of what they're intaking.
1: Oh yeah, you know, it's just <laughs> so. I hear you. It's so culturally bound, right? Right. It, right. The, in the U.S., we're partic- We don't do vacation. People don't take their vacation time. Uh, we work endless hours. A lot of people are working multiple jobs. Um, the achievement culture that we have mixed with the pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, the American dream is available for everyone and you just need to work hard, that hard work but success in the U.S. Um, it's incompatible in many ways with some of the things we've talked about, right? Which is to say that though, you know, as long as those are the benchmarks for success and that you lived a good life. Um, it's right. going to be hard to convince people that their wellness deserves attention and time. And sometimes they just can't, they can't make the time that they wanted to, right? It requires them to like be able to take time off work to bring their kid into the therapist, to take themselves into the therapist. Like our, you know, we've got to do the the work, I think, as a society to say, um, we are going to make these things important. Um, and so, you know, I think without that, some people will find it right. Like some people are going to say, you know what? I want to value this and here's where my values are going to align. And I'm going to invest time in this because I value it. Um, but without a cultural shift to say that, no, 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 we all value this. Um, I think we'll have a hard time convincing people broadly to do these things. Um, you know, as a therapist, my general take, when someone comes in to my, and sits in front of me, um, I try to take my lens off, you know, I know what my lens is and I'm interpreting it all back in there, but I want to hear from them. Like what are, what would, if they could, you know, they talk about the miracle question, like if you could change anything, how would life look different? You know, what would that thing be? And. Um, let's work on that first. Um, It may not be the thing I think actually needs to change. um, But I think there's, you know, if someone comes in my door, I'm not going to force a diagnosis on them. I'm not going to say that it has to be this thing they're working on. Um, I'm going to listen and hear like, what, what do you need to see look different in your life to have good quality of life? Um, Yeah.
0: And and really like, honestly what what do you want you know that's that's William Glasser's things like what do you want what are you doing to get it how's that working for you let's design a new plan It's WDP of, of reality therapy but but the what do you want is what do you really want you have to be honest with yourself um and not just go oh, I just want to be at peace it's like well what do you really want saying when you say that oh man I want my wife to calm down <laughs> I was like oh holy cow now you know, or I got to get out of my job. Well, haven't you had that job for 25 years and you're approaching retirement? Yeah, but it's still seven years away. And I don't know if I'm going to make it, you know, like really want, um, and then start working on that. Uh, it's like, I hear you saying the society, you know, society needs to shift. We need to have a culture change, but if the individuals within that society don't do it, society won't magically up and do it. Right. So this is like, like, this is why we have podcasts, right? (laughs) So individuals can hear it and go,
1: I mean, it, um, (laughs) You know, I think I, I'm, I'm a. I have a two-year-old, so I'm recently an, a, a mom. I suppose, you know, it's um, recent. Doesn't seem that recent, but relative to older <laughs> kids, um, you know. But I've thought hard in my life on maternal health, but it wasn't until I really had to live it that I could go. Wow, we make people go back to work two weeks after this right? major life event when you know i i was struck by it before but it was different having my body go through it and then picturing that someone's going to work right now and they aren't going to work because they're excited to go back to work um then like for for sure like if that's what your choice is then by all means but they're going back because they couldn't afford otherwise you know like they lose health insurance maybe their employer
0: compelled them into it it.
1: um you know like they they need money for their families those things just um and where does change in that system come from? Well, it, in our society, it very often comes from the businesses, right? Businesses right. saying like, we're going to, some people, business leaders stepping up and saying, we're going to provide sick leave. We're going to provide paid parental leaves. Um, you know, we as a society could push it in voting. Um, it's just an example. Yeah. Um,
0: and really, that's the boards but, of directors of those companies saying, I mean, we will voluntarily cut profits from our shareholders to make this happen. So we have a healthier workforce and they have to have a vision on, we're not looking at quarter three outperforming quarter two. We're looking at four and a half, five years from now when we're producing more than we ever thought because everybody's happy and healthy. And that's a, that's a a concept that's not really well researched because it has to do with the future and future events aren't really predictable, but that's, that's what we're talking about, right? Real, actual sacrifice. You
1: know, the costs of, um yes it costs for paid parental leaves or for providing childcare on site. Um, but it actually costs more to have to rehire and retrain every time a Right. Away right. Um and so those those cost differentials can be tricky to play with. Um yeah, I just
0: uh let's also just do the right thing, man. You know, like you know, or
1: flexible work schedules. There's yeah. to show that flexible work schedules um actually increase productivity when implemented properly and well being and increase yeah job satisfaction, Um, or even something simple, returning to kids, school start times, there is really good data to show that if middle schools, but high schools in particular, started later to match the biology of the adolescent uh, body and their sleep clocks, um, that test scores go up, behavior complaints, and behavior problems go down, and we didn't have to change anything. (laughs) Because
0: they're not fatigued.
1: There's no, you know, but even that there's that we've known this for decades and yet it's really hard to implement because it doesn't fit well with our other systems.
0: Right. Well, Um, well, it's bus schedules, right? Yes. Yes. Bus
1: schedules look like then kids are coming home late in the dark, you know, uh, the system has to, would have to change too much. And there are schools who have tried implementing it and it's really effective. Um, you know, and so, I think for me, as a researcher and as a clinician, I'm always trying to pause and go, "How can I help translate this knowledge out?" And I think the the data suggests the best thing we can do is educating educating the people who receive the services. Um, You know, it's not so much training the docs. It's not so much training. You know, it's when consumers know what to ask for and what to demand. um, They're going to get better care, um, and they're going to be able to. Uh, you know, make sure their needs are met, and so we've got to make that be a bigger part of what we do. And I'm always trying to fix that in what I do.
0: If if I can make a little dark left hand turn here uh, and be cynical for a minute, w- will that really happen? Will that really happen? Because here's what I'm I'm thinking: all the consumers in the world can go to their employers. Their employers can go to their insurance companies and say, "Hey, look, we need this changed." And the insurance companies go, "No." You need us more than we need you. In fact, we're going to tighten the screws. For example, we still don't have preventative care in mental health. You still have to have a diagnosis in order to get treatment, which means you have to be broken before we can help you. Which is off-putting. It's stigmatizing. It is part of the problem. And as far to my knowledge, we are the only branch of the medical profession under that umbrella that does that. Nobody else. Nobody else requires that. You get preventative maintenance in every other capacity under the medical umbrella. So, like. Would that, is it even going to change or are we, are we just like too far out of the gate now? How do we, how do we collectivize to, to get the voices heard?
1: Okay. So I think two examples, and I'm going to drift mm-hmm. from insurance for one second. Sure. Um, so Christine Chambers is this brilliant pain psychologist in Canada. And she tells this story about, she had studied pain and acute pain management in, in infants um, and in kids um, across her whole career and then showed up in to deliver i forget if it was twins or triplets she was having a multiple pregnancy has these kiddos end up in the nicu at the hospital where she had been doing research and setting new standards for pain management care writing article after article about it and they weren't doing it they weren't you know it was her first kind of she tells this story so brilliantly of i'm at the place where i'm publishing these articles and doing this work and yet these evidence-based changes aren't happening in the system And so she, you know, kind of details her experience of kind of setting the standards and boundaries to get that care for her children. And then what she did next was she noticed that talking to the residents, talking to the physicians, it wasn't changing things. They would all share a message of, and I'm probably butchering her story a little, so you really should grab, (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) go find her on a podcast and grab her story. Um, But so I apologize, Christine, if I'm mixing details, but- the, the physicians were kind of saying, this is how, but this is how I was trained. I know there's new ways, but I was trained this way. And so she went to the parents and she taught parents what they should be asking out for their child's care. What if you have a baby in the NICU, what should you be demanding as a parent for pain management tools to ensure that you're reducing pain for your child? And she's built a fabulous system now up in Canada Um, all devoted to teaching parents how to advocate for their kids in terms of pain management. And I think that there's, um, that is some of the work we need to do. Um, That if we can teach people, if we can essentially force patient-centered care on the system by allowing people to feel like they have autonomy over their bodies and their health, that they understand how their bodies work, that they they know the the type of care, what does good evidence-based care look like and to provide them the resources and means to ask for it. Um, And if we put our, if if people are putting their dollars only into receiving that high quality care, the care systems will shift because they want to receive their dollars there. Now um, there are complications that of course, like Medicaid, it's harder to pick where your dollars go, those sorts of things. But you know, Otherwise, I think our best tool is education, right? That that people, maybe not all the board members have a heart, but I think that there are people who see the human side of things. I know out where, um, out in Reno, right, Patagonia has a reputation for uh, providing great on-site child care, for no. taking steps to actually do these things. And so, um you know, if if it's easier to get and sustain employers, if you can drive more profits, eventually, I think we can put pressure on those things to shift.
0: Yeah, and and I'm not, that's not my nature. My nature is actually quite the opposite of what you said, which is, um, if we just give people the information, they'll do the right thing. And then it'll compel the the deliverer of care to adjust accordingly for no other reason than they want to be seen as doing something good, right? There's very few sinister providers out there, I think.
1: I think as long as healthcare is wrapped in capitalism um it's the dollar is going to drive the yeah. best change right and so um if you if your healthcare system can provide better care better outcomes at a lower cost um you will get more of the people
0: yeah
1: and you know, and then I guess in the capitalistic model, you're probably buying up the other companies, right? And then you're going to keep more people can get access to your style of healthcare. Um,
0: Well, that's what Zephyr wellness is doing. We're just going to take over the world by doing it better. Mm
1: -hmm. Just kidding.
0: I mean, I don't (laughs) want to take over the world. I just want to, I want to stay small.
1: (laughs) But I do think that that's, um, you know, that that's one of the pieces of the puzzle. It's also one of the hard parts of, our healthcare system in that people coming from who have the lowest reading levels, who have the lowest number sense, who have the least education, who have the least access and the least means are on a nationalized healthcare plan, right? They're on Medicaid and they don't have choice. They don't have the same ability to shift to where they want to get the best care Um, and so it's harder for the people who need it most to do those things, right. To say that, to, to set those standards and demand care in that way. But gosh, how many of your clients know what good therapy should look like?
0: Oh, Mm -hmm. none of them, none of them. And and that's why, that's why I do things like podcasts and YouTube channels where I can get on there and go on a screed about like what people should be asking of their clinicians and that it's okay to fire them if they're not getting (laughs) things done. Right
1: parents that when they're talking to me I'm like look like if it's not working with me I want you to go find someone you feel comfortable with um
0: yeah and not and not in a not in a musical therapist kind of way not like oh you, yeah. you're telling me what I don't want to hear because you're making me look at my blind spots therefore I'm firing you no to like <laughs> like bring it to our attention first let us change uh, or evolve or research something to to meet you where you are don't just don't just fire us because we're not telling you what you want to hear that's not appropriate either
1: Um, But, you know, Jake, wrapping back to health-related things, I work with a lot of kids who have chronic diseases. And most commonly, Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work with teens and young adults who have a disease called type 1 diabetes. Um, So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease uh, where the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin are killed off by your immune system. And so you have to wear or engage in a bunch of medical behaviors every day that are just straight burnout. It's, it's not fun to do. Um, it can be painful at times. It can have stigma. It's, you know, a whole host of things. And just like any chronic disease we have, a lot of kids find are resilient in this and make the best of it, but a, a lot of kids struggle. The rates of depression and anxiety in teens who have this disease are significantly elevated. Parents of these teens also have increased rates of psychopathology. But one of the complaints I hear most from parents is that their doctor will tell them, their, their pediatric endocrinology doctor who treats their chronic disease, will tell them, you need to go to seek a therapist, go get mental health services. And they show up in the therapist's office um, because they're struggling with managing this chronic disease. They look like they're depressed. Um, and the therapists no, have no clue what to do with it. Right, the parents really have to walk in. They aren't sure. What do I bill? I'm not sure if this is really depression. If it's not depression, what am I billing under? What are the evidence based treatments for this? Um, it's really really hard to tell the difference between hot persistently high blood glucose levels and depressed mood. The, really? the symptom set is the same pretty much. Um, and so there's so much work even to do just so that people, when they want to target a physical health issue, can show up in their therapist's office and have a therapist who has an idea or a sense of where to start even, um, that doesn't rely on the family providing the education. And so, you know, I think even beyond just people knowing how to do this, especially when you add health behaviors into it, there's just no, um, there aren't service providers available who have this expertise at this point um, the same kind of goes for chronic pain in kids, for uh, you know medically unexplained physical symptoms. There's just sometimes it's really tricky for families, even if they want care, um, to find providers who have experience with those kind of
0: things. So, what I'm kind of hearing is that it's just not appropriate to refer somebody whose um, symptom presentation is pretty clearly linked to an, an endocrinology issue. To refer them to therapy, it's it's just not it's not appropriate.
1: It's you know it's so I no I wouldn't frame it that way. I think that the way I would instead frame it is that we need really good multidisciplinary care for Mm. teens who have type one diabetes because if you've got really the cause of those persistently high blood glucose levels um, is Failing to engage in the health behaviors that teens need to do every day to manage this disease. And oh,
0: so I totally misheard you
1: okay. Aren't giving themselves
0: They're not doing their insulin shots, shots or I got it. Yeah, got it. And so
1: now they have persistently high blood glucose levels. Um They get sent off to their therapist to treat depression, but not all of these kids are experiencing depression And then often the therapists aren't really sure where to start. Well, like, how do I get a kid to inject insulin more often or use their pump more effectively or check their blood glucose levels more regularly? Um, Flipping back to what you were talking about, um, sometimes it's a diagnostic. Like a kid may present when they've had uncontrolled glucose levels for a bit before they're diagnosed. They may present with irritability, fatigue uh, a motivation, cognitive fuzziness, right? All of these symptoms Mm -hmm. of depression. Um, but typically along with other physical symptoms, right? Increased urination, um, increased thirst, um, weight loss, although the weight loss piece can be tied to depression as well. And so I think at the differential diagnosis, there can be sometimes some complexity there, perhaps. Um,
0: we just need to be better.
1: And so, yeah, you know, at that point it's tricky, but but gosh, wouldn't it be nice if when you chatted to your physician that you know a a therapist popped in right after to check in as well um, you know like that would community be,
0: health alliance you know. does it um yeah. their model's awesome you know mm-hmm. you don't you don't get a primary care appointment without a a mental health appointment along with it in their um, in their acute in their acute care clinic. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, what, wouldn't it be nice if, right? If we mm-hmm. could all just merge practices and share space and.
1: And um, you guys at Zephyr have been doing some of the school-based mental health care mm-hmm. um, in that same way, right? The kids are at school every day. Yep. What else, you know, how can we leverage that time and that community um, as a tool for providing mental health.
0: Oh, it's magnificent too. With access to the teachers and the administrators who see these kids all day long, it's, it's better than talking to the parents most of the time, because the parents only see them like, you know, after school and they're doing their homework right before they go to bed, right? They don't see them in their social engagements and they don't see them when they're drifting off in class or whatever they're doing. So yeah, that stuff's great. That the multi-tiered systems of support, uh, method is fabulous. It works super well out in Persian County. Um, in fact, they, they need a, they need a, an award for that. They're, they're incredible. Um, but yeah, we, we could, it can be done. It can be done. The question is, how do we, how do we compensate people for the time it takes to go like drive across town <laughs> or, or popping on the zoom thing?
1: What I always picture though, is that the number of contacts, if I want to provide really good care for a child, I have so many hours of unbilled work. That I, can, I cannot bill right. for the time spent on the phone with that teacher, the time spent on the phone with the principal, and then the counselor, and then showing up at an IEP meeting. No. If the family's wealthy, I could certainly bill them hourly, just out yeah. of pocket, right? But and Which some people do. Um, but otherwise, you know, those contacts, you don't get to bill for them. No. Um, and it's a big difference versus child and adult care. Adults don't have all those collaterals normally that you're trying, all those extra contacts you need to make. And when you can situate yourself within the school, um, ideally we'd be able to shift the billing structure across time, right? So that Uh, those contacts are easier to make. They're less intensive. The system's getting educated along the way, and we can actually reduce cost and increase quality of care.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, what I want to be mindful of the time and um, honor the rest of your day. Um, I really appreciate you jumping on. Um if you could send our listening audience away with uh you know one um exhortation or a a, book, a cool book to read or um you know some some nugget of information you want them to latch onto you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other it could be all of them but what what would you say More podcasts
1: My I think what I would say is that coming back to the start of all this is that health behavior change is really, really hard. And I, if I can give anything to my families I work with, it's to remind them to find patience and grace going through the process because none of it's going to change quickly and it's not going to be fun or easy. And, um, you're going to slip up and you're going to struggle um and so to be patient with yourself and show yourself yeah. grace like you um it's going to take time uh and it's going to require a team you know there is no health behavior change that is diy and so whether mm-hmm. that whether your team is a partner or a child or extended family or a physician or your therapist uh, your coworkers, friends um you've got to identify that team that is going to support you through that process Um, and set yourself some realistic goals. Um, what's one simple thing, uh, you could do this week, uh, to move towards a healthier kind of life for yourself. Um, and do nothing more than that. There's no need. (laughs) And that's (laughs) where the
0: grace comes in, right? Like
1: Mm
0: -hmm. being able to, to do one thing and and congratulate yourself Mm -hmm. rather than swallow the whole pie at once.
1: Uh Um, Because that's the biggest the biggest hurdle in health behavior change um, once once you've decided you want to do it um, is, is how long it takes um, and being okay with it being a process. Um, you know, we often talk about it now instead of health behavior change is lifestyle change, right? right is, sure. yeah. We want to be able to sustain it. It's got to be done in a way that's kind of shifting our lifestyle. But just give yourself, give yourself that grace, especially right now in the middle of pandemic, um, and it, with the state of our nation in responding to the ways in which systemic dis- discrimination has been occurring for, uh, you know, decades upon decades upon decades, uh, for people of color here in the U.S., I think we've got to, you know, we've got to give ourselves that grace to know that just one little step is uh, enough,
0: yeah.
1: uh, and is getting you on that path to feeling healthier across time.
0: Yeah. I thank you very much for setting aside the time. I really appreciate it. I know you're, you're in the middle of transition. And, uh, so taking time to to do this is greatly appreciated. I, I know our listening audience will appreciate it too. Um, Amy Hughes, Lansing, uh, formerly of the university of Nevada, Reno, uh, soon to be of the university of Vermont. Um, where's that Burlington? Is that Burlington, Vermont? Is that where the University of Vermont is? Nope. Internet issues.
1: Yeah, it is. Can you yeah. Hear okay.
0: Me? Yeah, Bur- Burlington, I think. Right.
1: It, yes. Yeah, Burlington. Um, yeah. Yeah. Never... No, um, it will be very different. <laughs> yeah. Than, than Nevada, but I think a good, a good. It's much closer to all of our family. So.
0: That's awesome. That's uh-huh. awesome. Well. Yeah. Uh, thanks on behalf of the Naga Notes team. Thank you for Uh,
1: having me. I enjoyed our conversation, even though I'm sure we got off track of our goal. Not one bit.
0: No, that was Uh, brilliant.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, we uh, talked about
0: physiology. We talked about endocrinology. We talked about how it relates to mental health and wellness. I mean, it's, yeah, no, we absolutely knocked it out of the park, I think.
1: Sounds good. Well, thank you, Jake. Have a good day.
0: Thanks, Amy. You too. Bye-bye.